You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. It's very difficult for a local council to get a 21-year-old man to turn up to a mental health clinic at his local hospital or some council building somewhere. If you tell that same person, look, come along for a game of football with a bunch of other young men who are in a similar situation and we build something around that, then they'll come and they keep coming back. We had almost 100% attendance rate for the AP kids. And in fact, when we broke up for the summer, the main issue that we had was that the kids wanted to carry on coming in. They didn't want to stop. Uh, Whereas obviously uh, the teachers were looking forward to a summer break. I wouldn't say that we went into Indonesia with the aim of unearthing talent for bringing over to England or or to Tranmere, but but certainly it's something that we will look at. And I think it would be a win-win if we can unearth somebody who would work well in, in the English environment. Hi there. Tranmere Rovers have been a true footballing success story in the last five years. The other team from Liverpool had slipped out of the Football League when Mark and Nicola Palios bought the club. There was even a danger they might cease to exist. But since then, they've had trips to Wembley, a couple of promotions, and just as importantly, built a solid business with a positive impact on its local community. The Palaces have just finished their first five-year plan. It concluded with the husband and wife team taking on their first investment from Indonesia, a place close to my heart, of course. Vice Chair Nicola talked to me about Tranmere's turnaround, those crucial revenue-raising community schemes, the importance of openness and communication, and also what the next five-year plan will bring. I'm going to be hosting a content strategy masterclass at the Football Business Spring Summit in Vienna at the end of February. I'll put some links in the show notes. And if you do happen to be there, please say hi. Also check out the show notes for links to Nicola, Tranmere Rovers, and all the good work they're doing at Prenton Park. Go to my website, mrrichardclark.com, to sign up to my newsletter. The other podcasts and the other blogs that I do are also available on that site. Anyway, let's talk about Tranmere. Let's talk about regeneration, redevelopment and being a community club with this person. I'm Nicola Palios. I'm vice chairman at Tranmere Rovers. Thanks for speaking to me, Nicola. You're considered a success story both on the pitch but off the pitch. Is that the way you consider yourself after buying the club five years ago? Um, I think... We've certainly had some successes. Um, I wouldn't say it's by any means a a sort of a done deal. Um, there's still a lot more that we need to do, both on the pitch and off the pitch. But I think, yeah, we we have managed to stabilise the club from from where it was. It was it was in a, a downward spiral. Some would say a, a death spiral which, you know, a number of clubs have got themselves into that situation and we were keen to try and arrest it. So I think it's it's getting there, but it's still a work in progress. I, I got a quote from your husband, Mark, who's chairman who bought the club with you, and he said, it's not a business decision we're making, it's an emotional decision, but it's one where we hope to bring business principles to the club. Was that a little bit hard to accept? It is such an emotional decision to get involved in a football club. A lot of people very successful business people who love football avoid it because it's a, it's a difficult business and, a, and a, a, a business where a business that can make rich people poor and make intelligent people stupid sometimes it seems 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is a business um, in some ways like no other. Um, and in other ways, um, you can run it like a business. I think it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really strange combination. There are a lot of people attracted to football clubs and to working in football who really don't have any business background and therefore don't necessarily do it very successfully. But equally, there are a lot of people who may have made a lot of money in business, but actually really struggle to translate that into a football club. We've got people who've made fortunes in hedge funds or whatever, but have, have struggled to make it work in a football context. And I guess what Mark and I thought um, is that Mark in particular has quite a unique combination of the two. And for us, it's a little bit about trying to marry up the business with the art form um, of actually understanding football um, and its place in the community but also understanding business and that was really why we tried to step in um, to save the club as we saw it we had a concern that it could go out of existence and that would have been you know a devastating impact on on Birkenhead and the local community and so what we wanted to try and show is that uh, business and football aren't incompatible. And if you do it properly, you should be able to make a self-sustainable club. Um, that having been said, uh, in the five years that, that we have been involved with the club, the task has got much harder just because of the way the economics are going higher up in the pyramid and, and how that filters down to our level. We come back to a few points you brought up um, there later on, but I wanted to talk about your purchase of the club because yeah. the story goes you were on holiday in France listening to the radio, Tranmere were in trouble, going down, and the conversation spread from there uh, that Mark said to you, well, that's that might be the death knell for that particular club. Is that story correct? And how did yes, the conversation yeah. spiral from it, there? Because it was it, like six months true. later you bought the thing. <laughs> it is true. And it, it, it is a weird, weird story. I mean, the, the, the slight backstory to it is obviously Mark had a, a long involvement with um, the club as a player. He, he was there for 13 years. Um, but, you know, he had long since moved away from Merseyside, but always kept in touch with, with sort of one or two people who were still... Um, connected with the club. So periodically we would go back to the club when we were up visiting family in the northwest. And about um, about a month before that fateful car journey, uh, we visited the club. And, and as we came away, Mark said, that's really quite depressing because the club has a bit of an air of death about it. Um, they'd just made a number of redundancies because they were losing a lot of money. Physically, the, the fabric of the stadium was just, you know, falling apart. Uh, all the paint was flaking off outside. The seats were all rusted. And, and also there had been a, a spot betting um, scandal involving some of the players um, at the club, albeit that that was subsequently later not proved. But the morale was really low. But at, at that stage, it had never entered into our head at all that, that we might buy the club um, until that that journey back from France, where, as you say, it was the last day of the season. In fact, it was the last 10 minutes of the season. I think it was one of those weird ones where several things had to happen for Tranmere to go down. And 
10 minutes before full time they were safe and and then you know everything that needed to happen happened in the last 10 minutes i think Tramir conceded somebody else scored uh and it was announced that they'd gone down and and so mark as you say said i think um that might be the end of Tranmere because, you know, Peter Johnson had been brilliant to the club for many years, but he made no secret of the fact that he was looking to hand it on. Uh, the concern was if, if the club was in such a downward spiral that if it got relegated into the National League, that it wouldn't survive that um, and, it, and it would cease to exist. So I, um, I did make the flippant conversation, well, why don't we do something about it then? Not really ever having thought it through, but over the course of a, a nine-hour um, car journey, we, we sort of talked about it, um, um, as I said before, about whether you can try and put the, the sort of business turnaround principles that Mark had done as a professional career for many years into the context of a football club to try and save it for the community. So um, by the end of the car journey, we had sort of convinced ourselves that there couldn't be any harm in just having a picking up the phone and having a chat with Peter Johnson to uh, to see how he felt about it. And it really just went from there. And it, it was it was a strange negotiation because there were at various stages where we didn't think it would proceed, usually because it involved asking Peter to take more pain before he handed it over. Uh, you know, as, as we started to look at the business, it was clear that it wasn't going to be able to sustain the debt that had built up. Uh, and he very generously agreed to write that off. Um, and, and sort of various steps like that, where we thought the deal would falter. Um, but um, yeah, no, it, it didn't. And then to, to, to add to the complication, I think Mark and I had planned a holiday to Cuba just before the start of the season. All of our sort of email and phones and everything were connected through Google platforms, none of which work in Cuba. So the last two weeks before the, the sort of season started, when we were trying to negotiate a deal, we were pretty much incommunicado, which which uh, made things very complicated. So the first day of the season, uh, we, we sort of travelled up to Prenton Park, not knowing for sure whether we were going to be doing a deal that day or not, but we did. Obviously, your husband, Mark, was chief executive of the FA, a former player, as you say, uh, an accountancy background. You're a, you're a lawyer, um, mm. Oxford-educated lawyer. You, you seem to have a, a, a good skill set between you. But looking back on the five years, what, what skills did you not have? Because it would seem you were a bit of a dream team there in terms of those, those base skills. Um. What skills did we not have? I think I think one of the things um, that that was a, a, a was an adjustment for us both was actually having to work, understand how to make things happen with uh, staff who you know hadn't come from the professional backgrounds that we were used to working with, and and having to try and uh, take a very lean staff who were sort of very willing to help, but through a, a massively steep learning curve in terms of what we were asking them to do. So that was certainly different. And for me, I guess it's the, the social media side and, and doing everything in a very public glare. Now, obviously, Mark had had that at the, uh, at the FA. He'd seen that uh, in spades and was a lot more experienced in that than I. But for me, that was a, a massive change because I was used to or, or rather not used to having every decision that you take being sort of 
looked at uh, and commented on by people. And of course, you're a woman at a high in a high profile job at a at a football club. Now, women in football have have it's improved even in the last eighteen months. The situation, the profile, the sponsorship, etc. But five years ago, when you first started, did you encounter uh, a lot of sexism? You know what? I, I I expected to, and I can genuinely say I didn't. Uh, I mean, I think Tranmere was always a bit ahead of the curve in that we'd had a, a female chairman um, of the club previously, so it, it sort of wasn't uh, it wasn't unusual. And a number of the senior management roles were held by uh, by women at the club, but nonetheless, I did expect that I would get um, the odd comment, and and perhaps I was guilty of sort of stereotyping that you know northern working class football environment is a very male environment. But I can genuinely say I never had a single comment um, of of that nature. But there's the more aggressive stuff and then there's the more passive stuff. So did you get any of the, oh, is is Mark there kind of comment? Um, I on, on certain things I did. But, but you know what? I didn't really rail against that because I didn't see it so much as a as a as a sexist thing as, you know, Mark was the one who the local community knew he because he'd been very visible to them as a player for many years. Um, and so to my mind, it was it was, you know, natural that people would. Uh, gravitate towards him more than me um, and and I have to say Mark was was great at trying to make it clear that it was us doing things together uh, and not him alone um, because he did say that quite explicitly when we took the club on that you know he was conscious that um, it would be quite easy for it to just become uh, all about him uh, and actually he thought it would only work if, if we did it together. I think trying to turn around a, a struggling football club becomes such a an all-consuming endeavour. I think if, if, if one of us was involved in it and not both of us, then um, it could have been a, a, a pretty difficult and, and quite lonely for the other. So we did very much say that we would do it together and uh, all credit to uh, to Mark. He, he sort of worked hard in the early stages, uh, always to talk about we are doing this rather than I am doing this. Um, and I think that helped um, helped me to 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 get to get a foothold in the club as well. So you're five years in now and I know that you've just unveiled a new or you're about to unveil a new five year plan. Um, the first five years, uh, I've seen Mark talk about the three fr- the three phases being create space, change yeah. the business plan, find investment. Yeah. So th- the interesting part, certainly for me in terms of creating space, was the dialogue that you changed with the supporters, the communication strategy and the social media strategy. Mm. It, it, that seemed very deliberate and all part of that creating space for you to make change. So could you yes. just expand on what you did vis-a-vis the supporters' trust, social media and the dialogue with the fans? I, I mean, I think we started from the premise that, you know, we are doing this for the good of the club. You know, we're, we're not doing it because uh, we're trying to make a fortune out of it. I think, you know, anybody who who gets involved in a lower league football club thinking that's a, a quick way to... Uh, uh, to a fortune is is mad. So we were doing it to try and save the club. And therefore, I think we, we felt that 
as long as we explain to people what we're doing and why we're doing it and they trust our motives, we'll bring them with us. You know, what would be the downside um, in doing that? Because where you don't talk to people and where you don't explain what's going on, then that's when you get sort of conspiracy theories arising and all sorts of uh, wild rumours flying around um, or, or just simple distrust. And, you know, whilst fans may not agree with every single decision that we take, if you explain why you're doing it, by and large, they can see your point of view. And I, I think a good example of that was um, when we were actually relegated to the National League at the end of that first season, we took what I guess would ordinarily be seen as quite a controversial decision, which was to put the season ticket prices up. And when that announcement sort of first came out, understandably, there were a few people saying, oh, you know, you've got to be joking. We're going to be playing, uh, you know, all these little teams and how dare they put the prices up. But we actually um, held a, a series of meetings to, to actually sit and explain to people what the logic was and take them through um, the financial situation of the club and, and the fact that you know, yeah, we could cut the season ticket prices more. And that's actually, they had cut the season ticket prices um, the season before we came in. Um, but the consequence was they'd got relegated again because they had a tiny playing budget and so they couldn't afford the squad they needed to stay up. And and that's how you get into, um, in, into one of these death spirals. So, you know, we explained to them the logic of the priority is to get back out of the National League into the league we're not going to be able to do that by just cutting back and cutting back and cutting back all the time. You've got to be bold. You've got to have a, a, a vision to expand the business. Um, and, and our season ticket numbers went up by about 10%, I think, that year, despite the fact that we'd got relegated um, and, and put the prices up. Because, you know, the fans aren't stupid, um, but, but fans are often expected to operate in a, in a vacuum with a lot of football clubs because they just don't tell them what's going on and in terms of the supporters trust mm -hmm. there was the initial conversation supporters trust saying well could we have a could we buy the club and i'm, I'm yeah. right in thinking we explained why you couldn't well the supporters club didn't have the the finances to buy the club or the supporters yeah. trust didn't so you, but you've not you've not gone down the route of getting a fan representative on the board, but you have opened up your management meetings, which is something I've not heard before, because yeah, that's where the actual decisions are made, right? That affect yeah. the fans. Yeah, I mean, to me, to me, it's much more important. I mean, you know, th th there's a lot of noise about putting, um, you know, fan representatives on the board, um, but. It, You've got to understand the culture of a club and putting them on the formal board will achieve absolutely zero if the club aren't bought into actually making use of the voice of, of the supporters trust or whoever the fan representative is. Because it's not difficult to turn board meetings into a very anodyne, here's the accounts, there you go, let's have a vote to approve them and... It, you know, to, to, to new to the real debate. For us, we wanted to actually get the supporters trust involved in the big, important decisions. Um, and, and the way that we run, because Mark and I were the only directors of the club, we didn't really run it by board meetings anyway. We had a very flat structure. The important meetings to be in were the senior management team meetings where we would discuss everything from, um, from safety issues to commercial issues 
and so the supporters trust have been involved um, in those meetings from the outset of us coming in um, and in fact when uh, we, we now have two representatives um, one from the supporters trust and, and another is the former um, supporters trust representative who actually his contribution was really important and useful so when his time was up on the supporters trust we Im invited him to continue coming to those meetings just to somebody who's uh, a really valuable source for us. And there are some really important areas, such as season ticket pricing, that we allow them to lead on. They're not there as a, as a, as a token gesture. They really do get to the heart of what we are doing at the club. And it, I think it's worked, it's worked really well. It's worked well from our perspective because we do get that valuable input around the fan perspective on everything. And, and I think it's worked from their perspective in that they are able to influence what goes on um, at the club, but also to be that point of communication with the fans um, so that everybody understands what's going on within the constricts of, of confidentiality. Because I think one of the concerns about having uh, fan representatives at that level um, of debate has always been around confidentiality and whether stuff will leak out that's very sensitive and I can genuinely say that the, the guys we've had on the board have been absolutely brilliant about that, that we, we really haven't had an issue with it so it's a model that I would um, I would recommend to lots of other football clubs and, and frankly I'm surprised um, that more don't do it that is the issue, isn't it? Confidentiality, fear of more openness will bring more scrutiny, I suppose. You talked about that there are confidential, whether it's clauses or caveats or however you phrase it. How have you, how have you communicated that to your supporters' reps? Is it, is it just done on trust or, or what? So, so the guys who come on the board um, sign they do sign a confidentiality agreement. But I mean, you know, confidentiality agreements uh, are not really worth the paper that they're written on in, in most circumstances. It is largely an element of trust. Um, and and they've, they haven't betrayed our trust at all in that. Um, there have been things um, very, very small where Mark and I haven't discussed um, it with them. But usually that would just be if we were uncomfortable about discussing you know, an individual uh, with them for, for, for reasons of, of maintaining somebody else's confidentiality. It's incredibly rare that there's uh, things that we that we won't discuss with them. The other part of your communications strategy is social media. You put a lot of emphasis on that. And I was staggered to read that you've got 34% of your social media followers come from overseas. With due respect to Tranmere, you probably don't get the profile <laughs> overseas that the Premier League clubs do. Um, yeah. and, when, and when I was at Arsenal, I think it was two-thirds of our traffic, our website traffic was overseas. But, you know, <laughs> that's a little bit different. Um, how have you done that and what's been your approach to social media? Um, I guess, like, uh, in, 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 in the same way that our approach to communication generally at the club has been to try and be as open as possible. We have taken the same approach with um, social media. We have uh, one of our associate directors, uh, Lee McAteer, is, you know, a, a, a bit of a genius around social media and, and how to put things together in a way that gets a lot of attention. There's, there's quite an art form to 
knowing how to sort of tread that line between making things that are interesting, sometimes thought provoking. They can be quite funny, some of them, um, just to sort of raise the profile. And he's he's really good at that. Um, uh and, and, and the international bit, yeah, has been has been quite interesting. One of my favourite stories on, on the sort of international knowledge of Tranmere was uh, I met a, a, a Scouse teacher who'd gone out to work in um, Shanghai. And he said on his first day of, of teaching English in Shanghai, he was explaining to the class that he was from Merseyside. And he said, uh, uh, have any of you heard of Liverpool or Merseyside? And a few of the kids stuck their hand up and said, what do you know about it? And one of them piped up, Tramir Rovers, <laughs> 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 which I, I, I quite like that as a story. But um, yeah, I think for us, social media is an important way of being able to get a direct message out to a lot of people in a low cost way and without somebody else changing the tone or, uh, you know, the message that you're trying to get across. So personally, I see it as uh, as a really important tool. It can be a burden. Um, making yourself so very accessible. Um, I can't tell you how many personal messages I got asking me around tickets for the Man United game in the <laughs> FA Cup recently. And, you know, obviously, when when times are um, are difficult and we are struggling in the league at the moment um, then because we are very accessible on social media it does mean that you get a certain amount of negative stuff that, that you've just got to try and ignore but I think for us it's it's worth it in terms of the power that social media can bring as a communication tool. Just moving on to your business plan, the the second part of, of Mark's initial five-year plan, sorry your initial five-year plan was changing the the business plan and now you've you've doubled commercial income in the last five years a lot of that mm-hmm. i think will be down to your your change of um of emphasis on facilities you've redone the shop um the merchandising has changed i'm really interested in the way you've used the community side mm. of the club as a revenue raiser with yeah. courses btech courses for players who've been let go from academies and got money from the council basically to educate people using the pull of a football club. Is that basically the way it's worked? Yeah, absolutely. So I think for us, the community work that we do divides into two different things. There's the community bit that most people would think of, which is the purely sort of charitable side and we get grants to deliver stuff and and we do that. But but I think the more innovative bit is, as you say, using the football club um, as a as a vehicle for more effective delivery of some of the social programs that are needed in the area. So, for example, it's pretty widely accepted now that there's a, a, a big crisis in adolescent mental health and, and mental health of, of young men in particular. You know, you're seeing a spike in, in depression and suicide rates. Now, it's very difficult for a local council to get a 21-year-old man to turn up to a mental health clinic um, at his local hospital or some council building somewhere. If you tell that same person, look, come along for a game of football um, with, uh, you know, a bunch of other young men who were, who were in a similar situation and we build something around that, then they'll come and they keep coming back. And it becomes... 
it, it becomes quite powerful because the fact that they are coming for football uh, means that they are, uh, you know, doing some physical exercise, which releases serotonin in the brain, which of itself helps make them feel better. But it's also getting them socialising with other people who they can talk to because they're all in the same bucket. So you don't have that stigma around, I don't want to admit to my mates that I'm, I'm really struggling. And so it becomes very powerful and effective and as a consequence of that you know our local council will now pay us to deliver effectively give us some of their mental health budget because we can deliver it in a more effective way that, than they can and and you're right the education is 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 the same principles um in that instance we get funded from um from the education authorities uh, through the skills funding agency but but what we do is pick up a lot of kids who have sort of fallen out of mainstream education or just aren't well suited to mainstream education. And you can put them in a football environment um, and, you know, it, it just suits them much better. I mean, we, we, we started doing some work. We've been doing work um, at, at a college level. Uh, so for sort of 16 plus um, for a number of years now, and that's been really successful. But last year, we started doing some work with uh, alternative provision um, for younger kids. So this is 14 to 16 year olds who've been um, largely those who've been excluded from school. So you've got quite a difficult um, cohort in terms of they have traditionally very low attendance rates. Uh, and we had almost 100% attendance rate for the AP kids. And in fact, when we broke up for the summer, the main issue that we had was that the kids wanted to carry on coming in over the summer. They didn't want to stop. Uh, whereas obviously uh, the teachers were looking forward to a, a, a summer break. And so, you know, that's, that's the power of football, that if you use it in the right way, you can harness it to reach people who are really difficult for other um other very well-meaning bodies or authorities um, to, to actually reach. And I think that's something that we really need to make the most of. So for us, it's an absolute win-win because, you know, it's, it's, it's creating revenue and profits for the club, which is great. Um, it is genuinely helping a lot of individuals who probably wouldn't otherwise be getting the help um, that they need. And it's also uh, helping to build and establish our relationship in our community as as an organisation which is a force for good locally, whether you're a football fan or not. Even if you can't stand football, it, it would be very difficult to think that it's not a good thing um, to have an effective delivery vehicle for getting kids who are at danger of, of falling off the educational radar altogether a, a decent education. Um, in, in terms of providing health, uh, health outcomes and mental health outcomes for the local community. So it's, it's, a, it's a huge win-win all around, um, I, I think, for, for, for both the club and, and the people who use the services. Is there, a, is there a win for the club commercially as well? I mean, that's not the, 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 the basis of the reason for doing it, but I've, I've heard Mark talk about, well, <clears throat> Liverpool is a city where you think about red shirts and blue shirts, not always first about white shirts, I'll be, I'll be mm -hmm. honest. Um, yeah. and, yet, and yet you've doubled the tickets sold since the last time you were in League One. 
Mm-hmm. And do you think the community efforts have been a part of that? Because if you can can get that sort of five to twelve year old kid connected with with Tranmere, I, I've heard Mark argue that well, he'll 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 think of white shirts as much as red and blue because of that first moment. So, is there commercial aspect to your community work in that sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and you know that is part of the win win that I was I was talking about. I mean, one of the one of the brilliant. Um, community-related projects um, that that has started at the club um, is where a lot of our fans um, buy season tickets to be distributed to disadvantaged kids who wouldn't otherwise be able to come to the game, and 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 that's a perfect example. Yeah, when you when you hook young kids in, you know. The, the, the weird thing about football is, you, you know, if you get them when they're six, seven, eight years old, more often than not, you've got a fan for life and, and you've got somebody who will, you know, be that next generation for the club. And that's something that a, a lot of clubs are, are struggling with and particularly um, some of the Premier League clubs, just because, you know, they're not very affordable for, for youngsters to be able to go to. Tickets are very hard to get. Football becomes something very different. It becomes something that you see on the television, but not something that you experience live. And for me, they massively miss out on that. So we've always been very keen to try and encourage uh, the next generation of, of, of Tranmere supporters uh, back into the club because, yeah, it is financially at work for us. Um, but but just in terms of, of our reputation in the local community, I've lost count of how many kids now have... have uh, have commented on the fact that it's it's actually quite cool to be a Tramier supporter at school now, whereas they used to be sort of vaguely embarrassed about it if you weren't a red or a blue. Whereas now they're quite proud to support their local club, and I I think that's brilliant that 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 people are 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 proud of something that they can actually be an involved part of. I'm married to a, a scouser. Um, I'm an Essex boy by birth, but I'm married to a Scouser, so I, I can say this with a with a, a little bit more confidence than I otherwise was would. Liverpool's a little bit different in the in the way that it approaches itself as a city. There is a very much a communal feel about it. Do you think what you've done could be replicated in other cities just because you've done it in Liverpool and that's got a special self perception? Should we say? Um, I I think. Some of those attributes of Liverpool uh, probably do make it a bit easier. Um, there is a there is a strong community spirit that that still exists in Liverpool in a way that I think has died out in in um, in many places. But I think you'll still find it in quite a lot of northern towns in particular. Um, I think I think I think. My sense is it possibly dissipates as you get further south. I think because you've got because you've got probably um, less stable populations, so you don't get quite that same sense of connection. You know, if if you look at London, you have a lot of people who've moved to London, but they're not from London, and you've got you know you've got an enormously diverse and and international. Um, uh, center there with people coming and going all the time which which brings many strengths i'm not knocking it um but i think it probably makes it harder to to to, to really foster that sort of um sense of long-lasting community um it, it, it's it surprised me um when i came up here how many people 
are born and brought up in the Wirral uh, and don't leave the Wirral or they might leave uh, for a little while but they come back again and, and talking to one of the university chancellors here was um, that, that the Merseyside universities are unusual in the proportion of their students who are actually local um, as opposed to come uh, from from away and, and I think so I think Liverpool does have, or, or Mer the greater Merseyside area, does have probably more of that than uh, than a lot of places. But I was brought up um, for part of my life in, in Newcastle, um, and I would have thought they would have much the same um, dynamic going on there. I would have thought, absolutely, you know, a club like Newcastle, how brilliant would it be if they could really engage with their community? Because I think they, they have the right demographic. They're a single club in, in, in a massive city, one of the few cities that only has one big club. Um, and, I, you know, I think that would pay mass not, not that it's my place to tell somebody else how to run their football club, but from what I know of, of Newcastle as an area, I think it would be right for a similar approach. Yeah, I went to, to university in Newcastle, and yeah, I agree, absolutely. I think, actually, it's a little bit more of a southeast thing, because I did a podcast with uh, Bristol City around their rebrand, and there's a tremendous sense of community there, so I'm not sure if it's, if yeah. it's south no, you're, you're, or southeast, yeah, you're right. shall we say. Yeah, it's the sort of the greater London... <laughs> Um, bubble. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Bubble. Probably. <laughs> You've been critical of how shall I put this? <clears throat> the care that the upper echelons of English football give to the lower echelons of English football. Can you just expand your your thoughts and your pinch points in particular at, at, at a club like Tranmere? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to vilify any particular clubs. Um, it's it's more a structural issue with the way that things have changed and and the unintended consequences that they have for um, the larger football pyramid. Um, the and 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 I think there are probably two things in particular um, that I see as having created enormous harm further down the pyramid which i think were probably um you know it's 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 an unintended consequence i don't think anybody did it on, on purpose but um the e triple p system has been uh, you know a, a a a financial disaster for uh, a lot of lower league clubs and parachute payments um have also uh had had dreadful consequences um the E Triple P system, um, in as much as it was always one of the ways that lower league clubs could really make a good, uh, sustainable, long-term income if they invested in young players, was by you know being able to unearth the occasional gem and and, and sell them for a decent amount of money. And there were there were lower league clubs like Crew, for example, who particularly focused on on having a very vibrant academy. Um, and, and using that as a, as a way of sustaining the club. ETPP, by, uh, by capping the compensation um, that, that, that is paid for young players, just means it's no longer, in my view, economically sensible um, for a lot of clubs to run academies, um, particularly when you combine it with the massive expansion of the size of the academies um, of the Premier League clubs. They hoover up a lot of talent now at a very, very young age. And so by and large, the ones who are left for the lower league clubs are, you know, the ones who are not as strong 
Um, and you will find the odd gem in, in amongst those. You know, you'll find the odd one who's a, a late developer or who was just overlooked. Um, but but now your your ability to actually make money for the club on the basis of, of having unearthed that gem is, is massively limited compared to what it was before. And I think that's really sad because what you get is, is uh, you know, academies with hundreds and hundreds of kids in at the top level who are never going to get proper game time. They're never going to make it through to the top levels. And they're really there to make up the numbers because the Premier League clubs can afford to do that, uh, to unearth the odd gem. And, and uh, it, it's deprived the, the rest of the pyramid of, of a massively important source of income. The, the, the second thing is, is the pyramid payment, uh, the parachute payments. And that has been such a massive distorter of wages because the parachute payments are so large. If you come down from the Premier League to the Championship or from the Championship to League One, that, uh, that it means other, other teams who don't have the benefit of the parachute have you know, got a massive chasm to cross to be able to have anything like a competitive playing budget with those teams um, and it's and it's inflating wages massively um, the wages have have escalated hugely to even in the, the the five years that that mark and i have have been involved in a club and it's encouraging people to gamble uh with the the, the long-term sustainability and viability and the, the very existence of their clubs because they're gambling everything on you know making it up to if you're in League One, the championship, at least for a season, or if you're in the championship up to the premiership, so that they get this sort of enormous TV money and then the benefit of the parachute payments. And it's that, for me, is, is one of the things that has caused a huge number of, of issues in terms of clubs overstretching and, and overspending um, on wages just to try and keep up with the parachute payments. So... For me, it's not necessarily about the, the rest of the pyramid needing more money from the Premier League. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, th there should just be a, a greater sharing out of the television monies. I don't think that will actually change some of the structural problems in the game, because if you give every team in the lower leagues more money, then it just goes straight on the player budget and increases the wages and you haven't addressed um, the actual underlying problems but i think there is now a dawning recognition that there needs to be a proper structural review um unless we're happy to sacrifice a good chunk of of, of the football pyramid that is really unique in england you spoke there about player wages um and spending on success one, yeah. one of the big strengths of, of Tranmere, as we've spoken about, has been their their benefit to the community and their community schemes, both charitable and revenue raising. Have you slightly eaten into your, shall we say, success budget, on-field success budget, to develop those schemes? Um, we've always tried to budget to do both alongside each other. Um, we've always said that, you know, for example, if... if if we've done really well on a commercial project or we've got some investment in, we wouldn't just immediately put all of that into the playing budget because that's just like gambling black red at a casino, you know, and, and if it doesn't work, then you're back to square one again. So we've tried to put a balance of putting money into the playing budget, but also putting money into 
the sort of infrastructure projects in the club that will keep developing more income year on year on year that you can use um, to help sustain your playing budget. So, you know, our playing budget now is about three times what it was um, five years ago. The problem is that in in the same time, um, the playing budgets of a lot of other clubs have probably doubled over that five-year period. I haven't actually looked at the stats on that, but there is a, a, a big uh, amount of inflation, which is why so many clubs are currently uh, really struggling to keep their heads above water. So we've made progress, but not as not as quickly as, as we might have liked. But I think that balance is really important. And that's one of the things that's hardest for the supporters sometimes to understand because they always want more money into the playing budget because obviously they want instant success on the pitch and they will see more money into the playing budget as you know the the, the panacea uh, whenever you are um, going through a difficult time but we are trying to take a long-term view um, for the benefit of the club um, and you know we don't want to end up in, in the terrible situation that Berry, for example, found themselves in. Yeah. Was there a sense at the start of the season that having got out of the National League and then got another promotion straight away, that you were almost entering the danger zone here where it could start to spiral if you didn't keep a, a, a sane head on your shoulders? I think I remember uh, your husband being on a podcast and he said... Our player budget was, I think he said, 10 million. And even if I up that 15% and in the championship, that 15 million would put us well in the bottom third, not even at the top. I, of the I wish our playing budget was 10 million. Right, OK. I, have I got the percentages <laughs> right? But but, but, no, I, I th- but, but the figure's wrong. Was, I, I think what he was saying is that if we were to go up to the championship, because obviously whatever league you're playing in, um, your 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 fans are, are always hungry for you to get up to the next level. But there was definitely a sense that um, we were not ready to be sustainable in the championship. Yeah. Um, so that because if you added to our playing budget, our existing playing budget, the additional money that you get from central payments by virtue of being promoted, uh, plus a little bit extra for anticipated increased gate receipts etc we would have in the championship a playing budget of around 10 million pounds without having external investment in and that would put you right at the bottom um of the championship playing budget so yeah there was and and we spent quite some time at the agm explaining um uh, explaining that to the fans and and therefore why the next phase which is around investment into the club um again both as a mixture of, of investment into playing budget, but also the infrastructure projects, was actually quite critical to the long-term um, future of the club. I, I want to talk about that investment now because we'll talk about Indonesia in a second. Obviously, very interested in that. But you've been doing a lot of work, particularly in Asia, before that in mm. Mongolia. Am I right yes. in thinking? So I- explain your early work before we move on to the Indonesia investment. Um, so the early work um, was based around, uh, it, it was partly a belief, China is a football mad nation, um, which has no history of playing the game. So they, they, they watch it, they're mad for watching it, um, but they, you know, it wasn't a game that they traditionally played at schools, they don't have any amateur club structure there. And President Xi declared that it was a national priority um, to improve 
their capability um, at football. He felt it was a bit of a national shame um, that the Chinese national football team was as poor as it was. And so he decided that by 2050, um, he wanted uh, China to win the World Cup and put forward a very detailed plan on how they would get there. And that included opening 20,000 um, soccer schools throughout the country, ideally with overseas coaches um, in there uh, to help start right from the grassroots level, um, the development of football in China. And I guess we, in in our quest for um, commercial revenues, uh, saw an opportunity in that, particularly with, I think, Mark's former role um, at the FA, where, where under his watch was when the whole of this coaching system for the, the English national team had been overhauled and, and, and has had, uh, obviously, great success. Uh, in terms of the youth teams um, since then. So we went out there to um, to do some work. Inner Mongolia sounded like a weird place to go. Um, it was partly accident and partly design. It was partly that we didn't necessarily want to focus on Shanghai and Beijing, where you know a lot of other people would be flocking to as the obvious places to go in China. Um, and there was also just a personal connection with somebody... Um, uh, uh, at the club with with an educationalist out in Inner Mongolia. But then by, by happy accident, um, and, it, and it was genuinely a happy accident, I wish I could take uh, credit for it, but I can't, um, the Chinese government chose Inner Mongolia as the uh, pilot province for the development of campus football, as that means school football, um, in China. And so we ended up having been in the right place at the right time because they were rather astonished to find that there was an English football club already um, established and, and with coaches out working in Inner Mongolia. So we started doing some work with the Inner Mongolian government in terms of delivering coaching programmes uh, through their schools and bringing coaches. Coach education was probably the most important part of it, which was actually bringing um, Chinese coaches over to Prenton Park for residential courses um, to teach them the basics. Because if you think about it, um, it so one of the one of the edicts that President Xi made was that uh, football was to be on the national curriculum in China. So suddenly, every PE teacher in China um, had to start coaching football, and most of them knew nothing about it. So you suddenly got this vast number of coaches who need educating and and that's where we saw a, a sort of business opportunity in in being part of of that to help uh start doing coaching courses and accreditation for them and and off the back of that then so we had um you know residential courses coming over and, and we've taken the same uh same principles now into indonesia um into the u.s uh, a little bit in Australia, um, and it, it's really starting to take off. Uh, and let's talk about the Indonesia, because that's actually investment in the club, isn't it? The, the, a group's taken 15% yeah. of the club and a seat yeah. on the board. And that's the first time you've done that, because it's just been you and Mark until now, right? Yeah. So yeah. why take that move, uh, and why Indonesia? Well, it was always, as I said, part of the business plan um, in terms of those three phases. Um, it, it, you know, create a breathing space, the space, extract the organic potential and then get investment um, in to take you further, a capital transaction. Um, 
because you know we are still at a position where some of the the really visionary stuff that we would like to look at um takes more financial resource than mark and i have you know we we never came into this pretending to be uh wealthy enough to be a, a sugar daddy who could just carry on funding the club for a long period of time but there are some big projects that we think are are would benefit um the club and Wirral that require more capital to, than we can bring in um and so uh we we've been looking for investment for that purpose but it was enormously important to us to try and find the right partners, uh, people who were in it for the right reasons and who understood the sort of culture of the club and, and, and what we were trying to do. And in the um, in the Indonesians, I, I think uh, we've we found that. They yeah. certainly have a, an understanding of, of football in a way that I think other Asian countries perhaps don't have a, a as deep a love as they do in the sense that uh, you know I've been over in, in Surabaya where I know your group is based mm. and 55,000 for the East Java Derby I was mm. there and and the the fans are actually they can go a little bit too far but their passion mm. is undeniable incredible yeah. country and if anything I'm very surprised nobody has gone in and really put a put a footballing flag down in that country uh, because they're nuts about football. It surprised me it's not happened before. Yeah, absolutely. They they are nuts about football. They're, I think, the third or fourth most populous country in the entire world. Um, and and they, are, they are football crazy. But problem, they have massive problems with football there as well. And that's, that's what the, the Indonesians who have uh, invested in Tramir understand that and ultimately I think want to help strengthen Indonesian football so they're trying to learn um, from the way that we do things so for example there are no um, academies in the sense that we know them Um, there are no football academies in Indonesia so they don't have a pathway for their Indonesian players to come through other than to leave the country so one of the things that, that they are interested in is understanding how to build uh, an academy structure and, and, you know, what it takes to make that successful. Um, they also have a, a huge problem with um, football hooliganism. Um, as you alluded to, they have massively passionate fans, but it does go too far. And I think they're also interested in learning from the English experience, where obviously we had... Um, significant problems with hooliganism in the 1980s and how uh, how uh, in England we've managed largely um, to turn that around uh, and, and, and eradicate that certainly the worst excesses of, of, of football hooliganism um, from the game. So I think they're all things that they are interested in understanding, um, you know, big picture, how how you go about addressing them, because I think ultimately um they they would like to help in some way um you know the system to improve back in indonesia and in social in terms of social media i mean my, my job as consultant content director for the league there there are i think it's 100 million people have uh, mobile devices there it's a population of mm. 240 i think and 100 million have got mobile mobile devices they are selfie crazy phone crazy do you see a possibility in 
raising your profile over there um, and that being commercialized through through social media development? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it is something that, that we're working on. So we've just um, actually this week done a, a tournament out in Jakarta. So we sent a couple of our um, coaches over there. They, they've done a tournament and the winners of the tournament will be coming back for training camps over in England. So that's got quite a lot of attention uh, out in, in Jakarta and is, is sort of starting to raise our profile. We're already seeing through our social media statistics that, uh, you know, Indonesia is becoming uh, a, a market where people are looking at what we're doing. And clearly the fact that, um, you know, we have Indonesian investment in the club makes it all the more interesting to them because, you know, that they're, they're following the success of that. I think a, a lot of uh, people from that region will look at things like the success of uh, Leicester uh, with their tie owners and how well that's gone and uh, would be uh, looking and hoping that, that something similar uh, could happen here. Now, whether that ever happens, I don't know, but I do know that there is... A massive amount that we can do even if we get a tiny percentage of the overall viewing audience in in indonesia you know it's still a massive number because they're such a big uh passionate footballing country yeah the, uh, i always say Persib bandung uh, um the biggest club in indonesia on social media are number 20 in the world they're bigger mm. than inter milan in terms of social media reach so ab yeah. absolutely incredible um the big win for indonesia would be exporting players because they've always struggled to do that yeah. they've, but they go nuts when there's any european uh, development for example there's a young player a young winger called eggy who's at lech poznan at the moment i'm not sure if he's in the first team but the interest in him is immense so if you were to get an indonesian player playing for tranmere you would yeah. suddenly be the most followed club in yeah, whatever and, division and, you were playing and, and we did have one uh, on trial with us at the beginning of the season um walian who was called ezra walian and uh, yeah you're right there was there was sort of insane interest in that <laughs> whilst he was with us and, and that one didn't work out but there are there are some very exciting young players that we've worked with in Indonesia. Um, Cipriadi, um, for example, uh, came on one of the residential camps over here, and and sort of we've been following his career with interest. So, I wouldn't say that we went into uh, Indonesia with the aim of unearthing talent for bringing over to England or or, or to Tranmere, but. But certainly it's something that we will look at. And I think it would be a win-win if we can unearth somebody um, who, who, who would work well in, in the English environment. My first question was about, do you consider yourself a success? I mean, we've run through your first five-year plan. And certainly mm. I would say you, you, you've been successful. But despite all the good work you've done on the background, um, <laughs> do you feel that the on-the-pitch success that you've had, i.e., moving up two divisions relatively quickly has um, not masked any any good work that you've done but you are really judged if you don't have success in terms of all that background work do you understand what I'm saying ultimately ultimately with a football club you're always going to be judged first and foremost by how you're doing on the pitch and we've had really three great years in a row you know we had three Wembley trips in a row um sadly lost the playoff final the first time but then had had two great wins and I think it, it sort of 
it's it's almost as if some of our fans have forgotten <laughs> what normal football season is is like. You mm. know what what it's like to go through a, a bad patch, and so at the moment, you know, there are a few. I think. Who, who are having to, to readjust expectations again. And, and that's not a, a, a simple thing to do. But, you know, for all of the great community stuff that we do, we are a football club at the end of the day. And that will always be something that a, a lot of people um, look at. And you're on a bit of a sort of relentless treadmill there. However well you do, fans will always want more. I think whatever level you're at in the in the football pyramid, you know, and you see that in the Premier League where Man United think it's an absolute disaster if they're fifth in the Premier League because they want to be winning it every year. It's... It, 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 the nature of football is that it is a bit of a relentless uh, treadmill from that perspective. But but what I hope that we've done is is with the work on the commercial side and the community side is if when you hit the hard times and all clubs go through more difficult times, you know, all clubs, well, nearly all clubs will get relegated at some point, is that you've got the resilience and the goodwill um, in the bank to actually come back again. Uh, and I, And I think... That's what creating the resilience and long-term sustainability um, has all been uh, about trying to achieve. And there's a possibility, unfortunate possibility, that might be tested because you are right in a relegation battle yeah, we are, at the moment. Yeah, we are. Yeah, it's, um, it, 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 it's been a funny season for us because in Cups we've done really well. Obviously, we've had a great FA Cup run. We, we had a, a phenomenal success uh, against Watford, uh, coming back from 3-0 down to force a replay and then winning the replay. But um, sadly, we haven't been able to translate that form into the league um, at the moment for a whole variety of reasons, um, of which a, 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 a massive uh, catalogue of injured players um, hasn't helped, meaning we've had a, a, a very unsettled team. But... We are where we are. Um, we at the moment we are um, sitting in the last of the relegation places, um, but we, we've still got a lot of uh, games to play. And uh, you know we're, we're very hopeful that come the end of the season we're, we're still going to be in League One. But it, it, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend it's 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 not a battle because it is. Um, and and I think uh, uh, having having gone up uh, two seasons in a row puts puts a lot of stress on the team. You know, we've still got players playing for us who were with us in the National League. And, and when they've won you two back-to-back promotions, I think they've earned the right to to test their mettle and see whether they can make um, the, the, the step up. But it's, 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 a, it's a big step up in, in quality for, for, you know, for players to go from National League to League One in two years. And just last one, obviously we've covered your previous five-year plan what's the immediate future business-wise where do you want to take it in say the the, the next five years <clears throat> well we're in the middle of doing um sort, sort of some work around the feasibility of some some bigger infrastructure projects so uh one of which is the possibility of a stadium move um and and it is no more than the possibility at the moment what we're trying to um, get together is the funding for a proper detailed feasibility plan on that. But also there are some some intermediate things that we are looking at around um, I- expanding the international business and some of the facilities around that, including putting um, potentially a, 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 a sort of having our own accommodation um, 
hotel arrangements for visiting teams and players and coaches. Um, and again, they're all designed to be things that will generate uh, long-term incomes that can help to support a competitive playing budget at, at whatever level we're playing at. Well, best of luck to the fu- for the future and best of luck in the relegation battle. Um, thank you. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You can find Sports Content Strategy on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Go to sportscontentstrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at mrrichardclark.com. Mr.